the word of the Lord. So, as women in this beautiful Bay Area on September 24th, 2019, what do we have in common with Daniel? How can we relate to a teenage, Hebrew teenage boy, really he's a boy, of royal descent who's taken captive 600 years before the birth of Christ? And he's taken captive by an egomaniac dictator. Do we have anything in common with an exile who's pressured to assimilate into a foreign culture? Now, take a second, do this with me, to think back to your own teenage years. Get a mental picture of your 15-year-old self. For me, it was this, you know, long hair, ponytails. Why 15? This is about the age that Daniel was taken captive in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. Now imagine that your hometown is invaded and you're ripped away from your family and you're displaced from everything familiar. Your house, your neighborhood, your community with all its familiar landmarks, the neighborhood store, your school, the park, your church. You're never going to see them again. You're permanently separated from the people you love, your parents, your siblings, your extended family, grandparents, cousins. And you're separated from your childhood friends, the ones that are left behind. And they're left behind in your ransacked, foreign-populated city. Now imagine, after that, you're forced to make a 900-mile journey as a prisoner of war. You're going to see up on the screen that this was probably the several-month journey that Daniel made from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice how it goes up and around. And the reason why, even though it was quicker to go straight across, it would have gone through the desert. So instead, it went up and around through the Fertile Crescent. So during that grueling trek, you're not only grieving the life you've left behind, you're also mourning the dreams you have for the future. Dreams of independence, dreams of an education, dreams of a career, dreams of a family. Daniel probably lived out his life in captivity as a eunuch. And imagine the loneliness of that walk and the fear and the anxiety rising as you get closer and closer to a country where you don't speak the Aramaic language because you only speak Hebrew. And you don't share the national religion. It's the worship of Marduk, the god of thunderstorms. And you've, you're a faithful Jew. You're forbidden to worship all the multiple gods of Babylon because you only worship Yahweh alone. So were you able to kind of walk in Daniel's shoes and imagine what that would have been like? I mean, really, thankfully, Daniel's story is hard for us to relate to, right? But I would guess that every single one of us in this room has found ourselves in a crisis 
that we didn't expect, just like Daniel found himself in a crisis that he didn't expect when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem in 605 BC. Our life crises can come in many forms. Just this past year, my family had crises of a job loss, of cancer, of ailing elderly parents, of broken relationships. None of us is immune to crises. A crisis is defined as a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. Anybody not experience any of those? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> Crisis is what happens when you get pressured, pushed down, and squeezed. So it's like this is you. And you get pressured, pressed down, and squeezed. Don't relate to toothpaste? Okay, how about ketchup? All right. This is you. And this is what happens when you're under crisis. You get pressured. This is so fun. You get pressed down, and you get squeezed. Okay. <laughs> that was seriously fun. All right. Um, but notice, when I squeezed the toothpaste, what came out? Toothpaste, right? True to its identity. And when I squeezed the ketchup, what came out? True to its identity. When life squeezed Daniel, what came out? His true identity. His true identity as God's child was squeezed out so the whole world could see it. So I got a question for us. What's squeezed out and revealed when we're in crisis? What does the world see? Hopefully not ketchup coming out of a toothpaste tube. Daniel's crisis not only revealed Daniel's true identity, it also revealed God's true identity to Babylon. Today, we're going to highlight two aspects of Daniel's identity in God. First is the identity of an exile, and second is the identity of God's treasure. So let's talk about Daniel the exile. As God's people, we not only share that human experience of crisis with Daniel, but we also share Daniel's identity as an exile in this world. Listen to these passages from the New Testament about Jesus' followers. Some of you might remember these from our study in Matthew. I purposely picked them all from Matthew from our study last year. Oh, not these. Hold on. All right. First these. Paul says... But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And Peter addresses believers as foreigners and exiles. The last verse in Daniel 1 that I read this morning gives us a hint about how long Daniel was in exile. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
This means that Daniel lived through the rise and the fall of the Babylonian dynasty, serving under high, as a high official under many kings, some of which aren't even mentioned in the book of Daniel. The fact that Daniel remained in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus actually points to a time period 70 years later. It points to a time in the first year of King Cyrus when he released all of those captives from Babylon to return back to Jerusalem. Most likely, Daniel didn't return to Jerusalem. He would have been nearly 90 years old when Cyrus released the exiles. And Daniel's famous name is noticeably missing from the book of Ezra that lists all the returning exiles. Daniel probably died in Babylon. So his life serves as a very powerful example to us as a godly life lived out in exile. So even though we can't relate to him experientially as physical, literal exiles, the New Testament scriptures that we read challenge us to relate to him as a spiritual exile in this world. We titled our study, Hope in the One True King, because Daniel's story gives hope to citizens of heaven and subjects of the one true king who live out their lives as exiles in this world. Throughout the book of Daniel, we'll see how God as king relates to his exiled people. Even though this book was probably written by Daniel and is titled Daniel, this book is really about God. The NIV application commentary puts it this way. The Bible is a book about God and Daniel is no exception. Now, it's totally understandable as we journey through this book for us to be completely impressed with Daniel's remarkable faith. He's one of the few biblical characters whose record is not tainted by sin. We'll see in Daniel 6 in a couple weeks that even Daniel's enemies couldn't find anything immoral about his conduct. It says that in his governmental affairs, he was trustworthy, neither corrupt or negligent. Daniel's faith has certainly served as an example to God's people throughout the ages. But remember, we're looking for how Daniel's true identity reveals God's true identity. So we can't end our gaze just focused on Daniel. We have to try to connect the dots from Daniel's faith to God himself. God is the object of Daniel's faith. He is the object, he's the focus, he's the purpose, he's the goal, he's the target of Daniel's faith, his true king. Daniel had remarkable faith in a remarkable God. In order for, get, for us to just get a feel for the context of Daniel's remarkable faith, let's talk about the city of Babylon. This is where Daniel and his friends were taken. We need to go back a little bit, though, to Genesis 11 to get some background on Babylon. I'm going to read, it's just a short scripture, and I'm going to read it to you. It's up on the screen from Genesis 11. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved east for, eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, that is Babylonia, and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. 
They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that they may make a name for ourselves, that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if one, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. That is Babylon. Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Interesting, right? So you might have noticed in Daniel 1 that I read this morning, um, in your translations, especially like the NIV, Babylonia is footnoted with Shinar. That's because Babylon from Daniel's day traces all the way back to the land of Shinar in Genesis 11. So Babylon's legacy is one of pride and of a people making a name for themselves by building this huge brick tower to the heavens. Listen to what the Greek historian Herodotus wrote about the Babylon of Daniel's day. He said, in addition to its size, Babylon surpasses in splendor any, any city in the world you're looking at a picture of the main gate going into the city. It's called the Ishtar Gate. It's been reconstructed in a museum in Berlin, but it was spectacular. Herodotus recorded that the outer walls of the city were 56 miles in length, 80 feet thick, and 30 stories, 320 feet high. Those were the city walls. This is a reconstruction. Wide enough, Herodotus said, to allow, now picture this, two four-horse chariots could pass on top of the walls of the city. They raced four-horse chariots on top of the walls. Amazing, right? Maybe Daniel, when he's coming in through this gate, looked up and could see chariots riding on top of the walls of the city. And just like the first settlers in Shinar, back in Genesis 11, King Nebuchadnezzar also had a pretty impressive building program. It's estimated that around 15 million baked bricks were used to build the architecture of the city. And thousands of those bricks were stamped with King Nebuchadnezzar's name and title. Here's one of those bricks. Today, these bricks are physical and historical evidence of the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's building program may also have included one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Can you guess what it is? Yes, the hanging, Jeopardy person over here, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. He's credited with creating a lush, 75-foot-high terraced garden with this elaborate irrigation system that could be used in the desert climate of Babylon. 
It's believed he did this for his homesick wife, who missed the greenery of her mountain home in Media. In Daniel's day, Babylon was a thriving, cutting-edge city for the arts, for architecture, for medicine, for astronomy, for literature, and philosophy. It was a polytheistic society, meaning many gods, with a tolerance for many faiths. So, do you see any similarities between the Babylonian culture that Daniel found himself in and the culture we find ourselves in today? Aren't we living in a place we're on the cutting edge of technology and science and discoveries that the world's never seen? This weekend, I was in San Francisco. My son was visiting, and he pointed out these automated, unmanned vehicles. Right now, they they're piloting them in San Francisco, and they, they're little cars, and they look like they have little bugs, on, like, like little things on top of them. But those are radars and satellites to, to cue in. And eventually, they have an engineer in there right now, but eventually, they'll be completely unmanned. They'll be completely automated. So self-driving cars. Um, the new iPhone 11 is supposed to rival any digital camera in terms of its you know, wide lens and its ability to take pictures in the dark. Um, my husband's company, his company deals in single cell technology. Single cell. Remarkable, remarkable. And don't we find ourselves in an increasingly polytheistic culture? And aren't we under constant pressure to assimilate into the values of the culture that we live in? We read in Daniel 1, 4, and 5 that Daniel and his friends would be trained for three years in the language and literature of the Babylonians. In essence, the king took the very best young men of Israel and put them through this systematic three-year brainwashing program. And he did that to force them to forget their identities as God's chosen people. He wanted them to take on the identity of the Babylonians. An important component of these young men's indoctrination was changing their Hebrew names to their Babylonian names. Notice the powerful message that's conveyed every time these young men heard their new names. So Daniel's name in Hebrew means, God is my judge. His new name, Belshazzar, meant Bell's prince. It's like saying, you are no longer God's. He's no longer your judge. You belong to Bell. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, was changed to Shadrach. And this time, it means illumined by the sun god, Shamash. Mishael, whose name means who is God or who is like God is really the meaning of that, is look how deliberate this was. Look how deliberate. It was changed to Meshach, which means who's Ishtar, and that's the Babylonian queen of heaven. Azariah, his name meant the Lord is my help, and instead of being the Lord is his help, he's now the slave of Nabu. Similarly, doesn't the world seek to name us? 
Names like not enough, look out for number one, be a slave to fashion. Doesn't our culture, a crisis, the enemy of our souls, Satan, assign us new names as an assault to our identity as chosen people of God? Well, despite his name change and enlistment in King Nebuchadnezzar's service, Daniel never forgot who he really was and who he ultimately served. His actions revealed to Nebuchadnezzar and to all of Babylon who was the real king of Daniel's heart. Even though Babylon was a city founded over 4,000 years ago, is our culture really much different than the Babylonians? Remember the qualities that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for among the Israelite captives? From the royal family and nobility, young, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. The qualities that were prized in Babylonia are still prized in our culture today. Qualities of social status, youth, physical beauty, perfection, intelligence, and sophistication. I propose that we are subjected to a commercial brainwashing of sorts by this continual, subversive, subliminal message from our culture that tells us how to look, tells us what to buy that's going to make us happy, and tells us what's most important in life. How should we look, ladies? Young, fit, flawless, fashionable, and rich. What should we buy? Anything that helps us look young, fit, flawless, <laughs> fashionable, and rich. And who does our culture tell us is most important in this life? Well, wait a minute. If our culture tells you that you're the most important and tells me that I'm most important, we're all going to have an identity crisis, right? In the Babylon we find ourselves in today, Daniel 1 gives us a picture of faith when the world challenges our true identity as God's people. Daniel's life points us away from the false messages of Babylon in the direction of Jesus, whose message to his followers turned upside down that pervasive message of the culture. Here's those Matthew verses I was thinking of. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You see, the kingdom of God value system came into direct conflict with Daniel's culture, with Jesus's culture, and it's coming into conflict with our culture. Well, with that thought, let's move from the exile aspect of Daniel's identity to the aspect of identity that really clashed with the Babylonian culture, his identity as God's treasure. I chose to call this aspect of Daniel's identity the identity of God's treasure 
because of verse 2 from chapter 1. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. So just as the Lord let his treasured vessels from the temple in Jerusalem end up in Babylon, the Lord placed some of his treasured people in Babylon as well. Daniel was one of God's treasured people that he sovereignly placed in Babylon. And the first way that Daniel's identity is revealed in Babylon is through his resolve. We learn about Daniel's resolve from the key verse for this chapter. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food, so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. The King James, instead of resolved, says, purposed in his heart. The classic Amplified says, Daniel determined in his heart. And the Amplified says, he made up his mind. Daniel resolved in his heart that God was his true king, not Nebuchadnezzar. He made up his mind not to defile himself with the king's food. So why did Daniel resolve not to eat the king's food? Well, it's possible Daniel did not want to eat the food because it would break Jewish laws of what was clean and unclean. Or perhaps Daniel didn't want to eat food that would be sacrificed or had been sacrificed to pagan idols. One thought is that the exile's refusal to eat the king's food really wasn't about the refusing. It was really more about the choosing to be fed by God himself rather than the king. And we know from our text that after 10 days of abstaining from those royal rations, Daniel and his friends looked miraculously healthier than all the other young men. So Daniel's vegetarian diet was a way for God to display his reign and his power over the lives of these young men. But my favorite thought on this comes from um, an Old Testament commentator named Joyce Baldwin. And she says, by ancient Eastern standards, to share a meal was to commit oneself to friendship. It was a covenant. A covenant is an oath-bound province promise. So it was a covenant significance. Does this concept of a meal as a sign of a covenant friendship remind you of anything? A meal as a sign of covenant friendship. To me, it reminds me of Jesus's last supper with his disciples, and it was exactly that kind of covenantal meal. This is what Jesus said as he raised a cup of wine during that last meal with his very closest friends. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and do it in remembrance of me. So for Daniel, I believe his refusal to eat from the king's table went much deeper than observing dietary laws. It was a sign of his sacred commitment to God and a way for him to remember God's promises, God's covenant to his people. Daniel then goes on to show us what flows out of a resolved heart. Risk. 
For Daniel, God was someone worth risking his life for. How can we tell? We know from verse 10 in chapter 1 that Ashpenaz, the king's chief official, refused to put Daniel and his friends on a vegetarian diet. He feared he'd lose his head over that. This shows us that this king was not someone that you would question or change plans on. We're going to get a really vivid picture of the fury of King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But despite this very real risk to his life, Daniel requests a special diet. Why? Because he's resolved to keep his relationship with God primary and pure. So notice the order. Daniel resolved in his heart not to be defiled. Then what flowed out of that resolved heart was the courage to take risks. So we've been doing this. We've been connecting the dots from Daniel's faith to God. Do you think people watching our lives, people in our lives, would be able to connect the dots from our faith to God? Are we living as spiritual exiles in this world? Are we God's treasured people in what is a Babylonian-like culture today? Do we aspire to have faith that's marked by Daniel-like resolve and courage? Well, as we kind of wrestle with these questions, it helps if we remember that the same God who guided Daniel in exile guides us today. The same God who graced Daniel with gifting that would affect history graces us with gifts so we can affect the future. The same sovereign God that placed and protected Daniel in Babylon has placed us here in the East Bay on September 24, 2019. And he's protecting us as well. That very same God who was intimately involved in Daniel's life is intimately involved in ours. God's personal involvement in the book of Daniel points us to the ultimate involvement in human history by God. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, King of Kings, to come down to this Babylon world to be human and die on a cross for our sins. So as we journey through this exciting book of Daniel in, over the next nine weeks, we get to see how God powerfully uses the faith of exiles to reveal himself as the one true king. May our faith do the same. Will you pray with me? Father, God, we just recognize you as our king today. And we thank you for the example of Daniel. Thank you for how you are intimately involved in his life and you are intimately involved in ours. And God, we just pray that you would bless our time around the table, that we would draw closer to you, and that you would equip us to live as exiles, as your beloved treasured people today. In Jesus' name, amen.